As we look at Isaiah today, I want to remind you of the basic architecture of the book because you should be somewhat familiar with it um, since we've been in it for some time. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah is about stuff happening in Isaiah's lifetime, right? The prophet Isaiah is living during the time of the kings where, uh, where Israel and Judah are separate nations because of the civil war um, that ripped God's people in, into two different countries. Um, and those 39 chapters uh, are about how God would use the nation of Assyria to conquer Israel and then to, to thrash Judah and to do massive damage to it, right? Now, today we're in chapter 40, and that, that kind of catapults us into the, the remainder of the book, 40 through 66, right? There are 66 chapters to the book of Isaiah, and chapters 40 through 66 deal with events that are future for, uh, for Isaiah, and so that, this section here, which we started last week, uh, this section here is about, uh, about future, uh, future periods of time, and it's about three distinct eras, okay? So last week, we looked at 40 through 48, and that was, uh, that was about a very distinct era. That was about the time uh, when the people of Israel, all of God's people, uh, Israel and Judah, but all, the people of Israel would be in captivity to the nation of Babylon, which when the time, uh, during the time Isaiah was writing about this, Babylon hadn't even taken over yet. But he, he was writing about the time when, uh, when the people of God would be under captivity to Babylon, and he was writing comfort. God was giving them a message of comfort to his exiled people, saying, I will bring you back. I will bring you back, right? So those, 30, those uh, uh, chapter 40 through 48 is about the near future for Isaiah. It, it happens only 150 years later, right? I've got a slide up. Is it up, Sam? Good, thank you. Um, 40 through 40 is about that near future during captivity to Babylon uh, that happens 150 years after Isaiah wrote it. And it, it, uh, those, those nine chapters end with the last verse of 48, uh, chapter 48, verse 22. It says, there is no peace, says the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters. There is no peace, says Yahweh, for the wicked. And then uh, we cover what we're going to talk about today, which is chapters 49 through 57. And uh, this is about uh, the future time for Isaiah, basically from the future all the way to the end times, from the future all the way to the return of Jesus, when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom, right? That's, that's what uh, we're going to look at today. It's, it's about the things that are true about what, we'll, uh, about what people need to hear from, from Isaiah's time all the way till the return of Jesus. And th- these nine chapters will end with chapter 57, verse 21, that says, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And then the very, very end of the book is uh, chapters 58 through 66. Uh, that'll be our, our last sermon. We'll cover those nine chapters. Um, and it'll be about the end times, about uh, Jesus when he returns. He establishes a kingdom that lasts a thousand years, and then he destroys evil completely, and then his kingdom reigns forever and ever, right? So, uh, so that's the messianic kingdom. The thousand-year kingdom is a millennial kingdom. We can also call it the messianic kingdom. Um, and then it'll go on for eternity. So, three distinct eras. The Babylonian captivity, and then uh, everything all the way up to the end times, and then the end times till eternity, right? Uh, and, of course, the, the last verse in 66 is also about how there's no peace for the wicked, and it's, it's just a lot more in detail and stuff, so we didn't display it here. Okay, so today, we are going to talk about chapters 49 to 57, and this is stuff for everyone, every human being, to understand uh, and it's important to know, all, and it applies all the way to the time when Jesus returns. Uh, and while much of this stuff, actually all of this stuff, 
is stuff that you should have heard about before. It's all stuff that should be familiar to you, even if you've only gone to church for a little while. It should be stuff that's very familiar to you, but I want to alert you to the shift in emphasis from the prophet Isaiah, right? I'll elaborate as we go on, um, because the, the spiritual focus of these chapters is a little different than what we've seen in all the chapters previous, right? Uh, and I want to make a, a very important side note, okay? Um, everything we look at today, chapters 49 through 57, will culminate into a, a very single specific passage of prophecy right in the middle of it, and that'll be chapter 53. Technically, it's the end of chapter 52, all the way through uh, 53. And um, the reason why I say that is because uh, the material in that section, the material in chapter 53 is so mind-blowingly important that we're going to, uh, we're going to pull that out from today and skip it altogether, and that will be treated as its own sermon next time right? Uh, I promise it's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to do that uh, to make this series longer. I, I'm trying to keep this series as, uh, as targeted as possible, but uh, I don't think that you can, uh, you can rush through 53. I don't think there's anything you can omit from 53 and, and retain the main point, because every moment in that chapter is, uh, is, is vital to our understanding of the gospel and of God and his sovereignty and, uh, and his, his almighty power. So, I promise that when we do come back, we'll look at chapter 53, and it will be worth it. If you're taking notes, we're going to go through seven ideas about salvation, which apply to everybody, all the way to the end times, right? Seven ideas about salvation. That's what we're going to talk about. All of these should be familiar to you, um, and uh, um, we're just going to, we're going to look at the passages, and then we're going to identify the, the observation or the idea about salvation, okay? So let's start with the first idea, which is chapter 49, through chapter 49, okay? Uh, and uh, I, should, I should remind you, last week, uh, one of the points that was made was that God promised a just ruler, and uh, that just ruler was called the Lord's servant, Yahweh's servant, the servant of Yahweh. Uh, and that's, that's in chapter 42. That's speaking of Messiah, right? That's speaking of Jesus. Uh, so the title Yahweh's servant or the servant of Yahweh uh, is talking about Messiah. It comes up in four places. The first time we looked at last week in chapter 42, and then uh, the rest will come up in the chapters we're, we're in today, okay? Uh, chapter 49 is, is this second time that the servant of Yahweh, that Yahweh's servant comes up. Uh, it's, it's from the Messiah's perspective. It's Words written as though the Messiah himself were speaking. So, this is as if Jesus were speaking. Chapter 49, verse 1. It says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Again, this is not Isaiah speaking. This is, uh, this is the Messiah speaking. Isaiah is writing it down, right? Yahweh's servant... Messiah, uh, he says that God called him from the womb and gave him his name, which uh, these are features of Jesus. This is part of his, the prophecies made about him and stuff. Um, God had a special miraculous birth planned for Jesus, uh, and then God decided on giving the name Jesus, uh, Yeshua, to, uh, to 
to Jesus, right? In Matthew 121. Uh, this I- idea that his mouth was like a sharp sword uh, is an interesting image because he's not a military conqueror. His, he has a sword, and the sword is not a physical sword. The sword is a sword from his mouth, meaning that it's his word that he uses in order to, to conquer, right? Uh, he's, he's speaking about himself saying that it, his weapon is his word. That's how he's going to go and, and win. Uh, verse 5, and now Yahweh says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. He says, Yahweh says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, I know that's a lot of words, uh, and it, it, you, know, you have to read it a couple times to kind of get the sentence structure because it's, it, it's lengthy. But uh, what the Messiah is saying is that his God-given purpose was to restore Israel, to bring Jacob back, to, to gather Israel back, right? Jacob and Israel are the same, same country. Uh, his purpose was to gather Israel back. But then God says, it's too light a thing. It's too small a thing for you. You're worth so much more. You're capable of so much more. So it's too small of a thing for you to just bring Israel back. I want you to be a light for all the nations so that salvation reaches to the end of the earth. God says, my salvation, meaning the way that I save people, right? That uh, my offer of salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Messiah would not just bring Israel back, That's certainly his mission, but included with that is that he's going to be a light for all the nations. God's salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's his plan. Uh, Verse 7, thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, right? That's an interesting description of Messiah. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Uh, it says, kings, shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now, uh, what this is, is God saying to the Messiah, he's saying, uh, even though you're deeply despised and you're abhorred by nations, even though that's the case, at some point, kings shall see and arise, right? They'll see you, they'll stand up. And rulers, princes, rulers, they'll, they'll prostrate themselves, they'll kneel down uh, because of God who's faithful, right? Because of the Holy One who has chosen the Messiah. Now, uh, all of this is to say that, uh, that even the, the greatest in the earth will worship this, uh, this person that God is speaking of, the servant of Yahweh, right? The, the, the highest thrones on, on the planet will bow down to Christ as king. Uh, they'll prostrate themselves. That just means worship, right? Worship is the same word as kneel, right? Uh, worship is not what we oftentimes turn it into. It's not sitting in bed, eating something, watching TV, right? Uh, it's okay to, uh, to patch into a digital stream, but it's this idea of actively engaging and prostrating yourself, kneeling down before the king. That's not something that you have to do physically. It's something you have to do inwardly. And so getting the body in motion on that helps to, to uh, gear up in, inside to do the same thing. So the, the first observation that we're making from this chapter is that salvation is for every nation through the Messiah. 
Salvation is for every nation through the Messiah. Okay? By the way, every point is going to start with salvation is dot, dot, dot. Uh, and not only that, but we'll display all, uh, all the points at the end in case I speak too fast and you didn't get to write it down. Okay? So, salvation is for every nation through the Messiah. That's the first, uh, first observation we make. The second one is going to be in chapter 50, verses 1 through 11. Uh, chapter 50, verses 1 through 11, which is going to be uh, the third passage about Yahweh's servant. Okay? Uh, it's, it's also from the perspective of Messiah. Uh, chapter 50, verse 4. It says, The Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. That I may sustain with the word him who is weary. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Right? Notice what the Messiah said, uh, said he'll do. First is uh, uh, his word will, uh, will sustain the weary. Right? His word will sustain the weary, meaning that, uh, uh, that it's the things that he says and the message about him that's going to, for some reason, strengthen those who feel weak. And then at the same time, it's going to upset a lot of people. The servant of Yahweh is going to, uh, is, is, is going to be, uh, he's going to be um, tormented, right? He's going to be abused. He's going to be uh, struck. He's going to be, uh, he's going to be disgraced and spit upon, right? He's going to be a suffering servant. That's the, the theme that keeps coming up about this, uh, about this person, that the, the servant of Yahweh, the, the, the Lord's servant, is going to be a suffering servant. And yet, when he speaks, that's how he conquers, and his word is going to comfort the weary. Then uh, in verses 10 and 11, uh, watch how the Messiah's word or voice, it's going to be a source of light, right? Which is, that's a metaphor, right? It's uh, like, uh, I'm in the darkness, I'm lost, I don't know where to go, I don't know what to do, I don't know what direction to go, in. you know, uh, just about life. And his word will be a light, and, uh, and it's, it, his, his word is, is one kind of light, and then other people can trust in other kinds of light. So look at verse 10. Who among you fears Yahweh and obe- obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand you shall lie down in torment. So everyone uh, in this metaphor, you know, it starts in darkness, meaning uh, you're looking for the right way to go. And those who rely on the word of Messiah are sustained, right? They're, they're given a, the, the right direction. They follow that light. Uh, and those who rely on their own fire, their own torches, their own light, they fall into torment, for sins. They fall into torment, the punishment for their own sins, because they end up wayward, astray. They go in a different direction. So observation number two, uh, the, the way that we'll, we'll phrase it is salvation is by trusting and obeying the Messiah instead of yourself. Trusting and obeying the Messiah instead of yourself. That's where you rely on his voice as your light instead of your own fire, your own torch, your own light, right? All right, number three uh, comes from chapter 51, uh, Verses, uh, verse 1 through 52, verse 12, okay? Chapter 51, verse 1 through chapter 52, verse 12. This is now God speaking to his people about his plan to save them, about his plan to overthrow their enemies, and this is what he says in verse 7. He says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, 
And he, he means that as in you who, uh, who know me, who know what real righteousness is, right? Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, and the son of man who's made like grass? And you who have forgotten Yahweh your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. What God is doing here is he's rebuking his people for fearing man, right? Not just uh, being afraid of of people, but being afraid of what dangers the world can present, right? Being afraid of what consequences people and the world can uh, can present to you, right? He who knows knows the Lord... uh, God is saying that uh, if, if you know me, if you have my law in you, if you know righteousness, there should be a complete different regard for the world, one without fear, right? If you know who I am, how can you be afraid of them? Do you have any idea what that's like, right? Uh, how can we continually fear our oppressors? Uh, how can we fear pain? How can we fear poverty? How can we feel, fear difficulty? How can we fear the threats of men? Man is like grass, grass dies, Right? And by the way, we die too. Men can take our lives, and so maybe we should be afraid, maybe. Right? And yet, uh, even if, if men don't threaten your life, still at some point you're going to get old and die. Right? You're going to die anyway. So shouldn't we be afraid of all that? And yet here's God saying, like, what are you afraid of in any of this stuff? Oppressors and even death, right? People who threaten you with death. You're, you're afraid of death. Why are you afraid of death? And the reason why God says that Uh, implies that his salvation is not just from oppression, but his salvation is even from the threat of death. That even though you die, his salvation is still greater and still motivating enough, incentive enough for you not to fear it, right? Even if a man threatens you with death, God is saying, so I've saved you. So maybe you'll die. So what? There's like this sense of my salvation is greater than death. Right? Uh, chapter 52, verse 7. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. You might recognize that from Romans 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, this is clearly a celebratory tone. Oddly. Because the people who are reading it for the first time, the original audience, they'd be reading it and it says, uh, Praise God, because he's redeemed Israel. Praise God because God has returned to Zion, the mountain that Jerusalem is on, right? Praise God because he's returned back to Jerusalem. And it's one thing to read that, but when they're reading it, God has not yet redeemed Jerusalem. When they're reading it, God hasn't returned to Zion. The temple's not restored or anything, and it's, you know, nothing like that is going on. So uh, 
he has this, uh, this command to sing praises and joy, and then he's saying God has done it, and yet God hasn't done it. In fact, even today, in our time, it's the year 2020, right? Uh, even in our time, God still has not yet redeemed Jerusalem. God is not there right now in Zion. He's not there. So we get another look at, at, at this, uh, this literary device called the prophetic perfect, right? It's a, it's a perfect tense used to say that it's a completed action when it hasn't even been done yet. It's a prophetic perfect. It's that style of writing where a future is, uh, event is talked about as if it's in the past, like it's already done. Um, even though God hasn't done this yet, it's spoken of like he already has because that's how certain it is. Right? The prophetic perfect says it is so absolutely 100% guaranteed to happen, like there's no avoiding it. Uh, it's, it's going to happen. You can't not have it happen. And so it's spoken of like it's already happened. That's the prophetic perfect. But there is another reason why the Old Testament uses the prophetic perfect. And it applies to all prophecies written in this way. And I'll tell you next time, what that is, but it's something to kind of hold on to, okay? We mentioned prophetic perfect last time. We're talking about it again today. And next time we, we get back and we're looking at uh, the chapter we're going to skip, we're going to talk about the prophetic perfect and why that matters, okay? Uh, in any case, what's spoken of, as a, uh, what's spoken of in this, in this uh, prophecy here, in, in this moment, is not just future events, but there's this present ongoing aspect to a command. It says, sing, right? Rejoice. Um, you, should, you should celebrate. That's what it's telling the people to do. Break forth together into singing. Uh, tell others of the news of God's salvation. That's what it says. What's the word for when you tell people about how God saves? What's that word? Well, is it evangelism? Yeah. Is it celebration? Yeah. Is it worship? Yeah. It's all of those because you can't really separate any of those. You can't evangelize without celebrating and without worshiping. You, you can't. You know, and when you worship, you're proclaiming the, the saving work of God, so you can't worship without evangelizing. Uh, the, the command, the, the application, the direct uh, application is to tell the world, right? To proclaim it, to worship God for what's going on. Uh, and we get a, a, a very interesting application that comes from that in verses 11 and 12. It says, um, to the original audience, it says, depart, depart, go out from there, which is Babylon, Okay, because they're, they're still meant to read it um, if, if they're captives in Babylon. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from, from the midst of her, Babylon. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of Yahweh. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Right? This, this application is for readers that, that will live 150 years after Isaiah wrote it. But it's to tell them to leave Babylon joyfully, worshipfully, optimistically. Touch no unclean thing. Purify yourselves. Right? He tells them to live in godliness because of what God has done for them. That should be the natural reaction to salvation. God has saved you, and so purify yourselves. Right? God has saved you, and so touch no unclean thing, which includes commit no unclean deed right? Uh, he's saying, don't go in haste, right? Don't, uh, you're not running away. You're not, you're not afraid or anything. You're not, you're not, uh, you're not fleeing for your life. So don't, don't go in haste like you're running away because God will go before you. So you're going to follow him and he'll be your rear guard, 
And this, this imagery harkens back to the time of Moses when Moses led Israel out of Egypt and then God was the one that was in the front of, of Moses and the people of Israel. They were following the Lord. And then when the, Egypt, uh, when the Egyptians would pursue, God also moved to the rear guard, right? It's this idea of deliver, deliverance from captivity. It happened in Egypt and it is gonna happen during the time of Babylon, that God will lead them and he'll be their rear guard, right? Uh, so our third observation though, uh, all of this, when you, when you put it together, is to say that salvation is a call to godliness despite the fear of men. Salvation is a call to godliness despite the fear of men. This is where you touch no unclean thing and you purify yourselves and you don't fear man. You don't run away uh, as if Babylon were some, some threat or power to you, right? Uh, salvation is a call to godliness despite the fear of men. The fourth, uh, the fourth idea would be the, the chapter we're going to skip. It's chapters 52, verse 13, all the way through chapter 53, verse 12. That's the idea we're going to skip. That's the most important idea. I'm so sorry that I'm taking it away from you today, right? But that, hang on to that. We're pressing pause on that. We're going to treat that next time. So we, uh, our fourth idea for today, then, is in chapter 54. Chapter 54, right? Uh, verse 1. It says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says Yahweh. Uh, God is keying in on this uh, ancient civilization's notion that children, uh, that, uh, that having many children was a sign of blessing and that being childless was a curse. And uh, that's not actually a truism when you don't have children. That doesn't indicate that God is, is cursing you or something like that. That's not, that's not it at all. But uh, God is communicating on that level. He's saying, uh, you think you're cursed, but you're blessed than you can imagine. And, uh, and it, it turns out that the Apostle Paul will quote this verse in Galatians 4.27. And uh, he'll, he's personifying Jerusalem, saying that, uh, that she... she Right during the time that Paul writes, he's like, she has no believers right now. No, no children, no believers. But there will be a time when, uh, when her children outnumber the other nations, right? Uh, the Jews have no, uh, uh, during the time that Paul writes, the, the Jews, they, they were apostate. They weren't, they weren't following the Lord. And so they, she doesn't have children. She doesn't have uh, those who are faithful to, to God. Uh, and yet a time will come when there will be believers in Jerusalem and they'll outnumber all the, uh, the, people of the, uh, the unbelieving people of the world. That, by the way, is the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom, right? That's when Jerusalem will be restored and all believers from every era will be there. Uh, and that's when, uh, when the nations have been subdued. God is, Jesus has returned. He's gone to war. His, his enemies are destroyed and, uh, and Jerusalem is on top of the world. Right, and uh, there will be unbelievers that are alive in, uh, on the planet, but uh, they will be less than those who are in Jerusalem. Verse ten: For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but which is a feature, by the way, of the end times that he's going to re- renovate the topography of the world. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. Right? Uh, note God's focus, not just on being saved from calamity and catastrophe and danger and distress, 
But note his focus on having a right relationship with him, where your terms with him are, uh, are steadfast love, peace, and compassion, right? Where you're a full recipient of that, and there's nothing that you're doing to rebel against that. But there's steadfast love, there's peace and compassion. It goes on in verse 13. All your children shall be taught by Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh and their vindication from me, declares Yahweh. Steadfast love, peace, compassion, righteousness, no fear of oppression, no terror. Right? This is the kingdom that the Messiah will establish when he returns in power. This is what Jesus will do when he comes back. Right? That's, uh, that's described briefly in Revelation 20. It's the millennial kingdom, the, the thousand-year kingdom. Uh, and during this time, it'll be steadfast love, peace, compassion, righteousness, no fear of oppression, no terror for God's people. They'll outnumber God's enemies. God's enemies can try to stir up strife. Stir up, uh, that's another word for hardship or trouble. They could try to, uh, to give you a hard time. There might be some kind of verbal conflict or moral accusation, right? They, try, they might try to stir up strife or hardship for you, uh, some kind of an argument, but they will fail. This is the heritage for all believers. So our fourth observation is salvation is a right relationship with God with no fear of a curse like barrenness, childlessness. No fear of a curse, no fear of hardship. Right? No fear of a curse, no fear of hardship from other people. Our fifth idea is chapter 55. It says, uh, verse 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love, sure love for David. Right? Listen to the, uh, to the universality of the, the invitation. Right? Are you hungry? Come to me. Are you thirsty? Come to me. Do you need something? Come to me. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And so all the, the food that he's talking about or whatever that he, he's saying he offers you, he says, hear that your soul may live. Meaning the, uh, the, the food that he's going to give you is, is a message, a word that he's going to give. That's the weapon with which he conquers, right? Hear that your soul may live and I'll make with you an everlasting covenant. Uh, it's, it, it's an invitation to anyone who acknowledges the need for something more than the world offers. Right? Anyone who says like, There's, this life is missing something. Like, I have a hunger inside me that isn't satisfied by the money, sex, and power and all the stuff that the world offers. I have a thirst inside me for, for righteousness that, that isn't offered by society. And so there's something, I, I need something, and God says, come in here, and, and I'll make this covenant with you, right? I'll make this promise with you, meaning salvation. And so uh, the, the invitation is to anyone who acknowledges this need. Verse 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Notice the urgency here, right? Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. 
Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is a clear call to repentance. Right? The invitation is for anyone who wants to be saved to, to repent and trust in God's forgiveness. Right? To trust in God's forgiveness. That's, that's where salvation is, uh, is described, in his forgiveness, in his pardon. Right? His abundant pardon. It's not come and I'll, I'll give you rewards for all the good you did. He, he's not saying that. He's saying, come to me and uh, turn from your wickedness, turn from your unrighteousness, and, and, and I will pardon you. That's his offer of salvation, right? Because if, if you've merited a lot and if you've, if you've done good deeds and you think that that's qualified you, you don't need to be saved from anything, right? And he's saying you have to be, you have to be saved by forgiveness. Uh, the assumption of guilt is already there. It's an assumption of guilt, not merit, because all have sinned, all have, uh, have fallen short, all have, have gone astray, right? Uh, you don't need to qualify. You need to be forgiven, and the only way to do that is by repentance. Uh, and it's not just repentance from the things that you think you should repent of. Right? This is important here, right? It's not just repenting from things that you think are wrong. Like if, if you think, oh, it's not a big deal. I don't need to repent of that. Uh, it's not, you're not the judge of that. And, that. and that's what God's point is, right? He's like, my, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. Like what I think is right and wrong is higher. And, uh, and the standard is is clearer and sharper. It is more correct. It is a holy standard than yours, right? Because our own personal standards of right and wrong oftentimes are self-serving, self-justifying, where we say that I'm not as bad as someone else might say. And God says, no, my, my standard is higher. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. If you want to come to me, it has to be on my terms. You have to come and, and, and see where I'm at, not where you're at right? Uh, verse, um, verse 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that uh, which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Uh, the means by which people will be saved is not by force, not by bribery, not by manipulation. It'll simply be his word. And his word is the message of salvation. Anyone can freely choose to turn to God or to trust in themselves, in their own fire, in their own torch, in their own light, which will end in, in their own punishment. Uh, but as, just as God has declared the end from the beginning, he declares that his plan will not fail. He says, my, my word will not come back to me empty, right? His word is the sharp sword by which he'll conquer. Uh, so our fifth observation then is salvation is by forgiveness when you repent. And that, of course, being God's standard of, of righteousness with, of where you need to repent. Salvation is by God's forgiveness when you repent, Idea number six, which is uh, chapter 56, verses one through eight. Chapter 56, verses one through eight. Uh, start in verse three. We'll just read from verse three to verse eight uh, without stopping. It says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. 
For thus says Yahweh, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I'll give in my house within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Verse six, and the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, uh, think about what's going on here. The, uh, the two people groups that are addressed are eunuchs and foreigners. These were two kinds of societal outcasts in Israel. Um, they were treated without dignity, without respect, oftentimes like property because they were servants, they were of low status. And yet God promises them uh, honor and acceptance if they turn to him, right? He says, you're a eunuch and if you turn to me and you think you have no blessing, you're a dry tree. You can't, you can't have uh, kids and a legacy and stuff. You think that, that uh, your, your family name will die out with you. And he says, I, I'm gonna give you an everlasting name. Right? Your family name's not going to die out with you. Your name is going to be written on the wall, uh, you know, and I'm going I'm to make sure it lasts forever. He says, I will give you an, an honor that's more abundant than what you're thinking of. And he, to foreigners, he says, uh, foreigners, you think I'm going to separate you from my people, but I'm going to bring you in. You're going to be part of my house of prayer. Right? You're going to be there in my temple. You'll also bring burnt offerings and you'll bring sacrifices and they'll be accepted. Your offerings will be accepted. It's not that the Jews have to offer it for you. It's not that you stand in some outer court or anything like that. This is where uh, you belong. That's God's plan, right? To always, to always bring in the outcast. That's why Jesus was always hanging out with, uh, with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and, uh, and, and lepers and the poor and the blind and the sick, etc. Right? He's always hanging out with people that, uh, that the rest of society said, like, who cares about them? Right? Who cares about them? And here's, here's God saying, this is, uh, th- this is the, the people that belong to me. Right? These outcasts wouldn't be accepted as secondary citizens. Uh, they wouldn't be mere observers either. They wouldn't just stand off and watch the Jews do all the, the religious stuff. He said they'll be full participants alongside the Jews. This is a big deal, which is why in Mark 11 and John 2, uh, Jesus is, uh, is outraged that the temple, instead of being a house of prayer for outcasts, has turned into a den of robbers. And that's why Jesus overthrows tables and, and casts out the money changers, etc. Well, observation six then is that salvation is based on your regard for God, not the world's regard for you. Right? Salvation is your regard for God. If you turn to God, you're saved. It has nothing to do with how the world sees you, whether you be a eunuch or a foreigner. Salvation is based on your regard for God, not the world's regard for you. Our final observation then is in uh, chapter 56, uh, verse 9, all the way to the end of chapter 57, verse 21, okay? Um, Start in chapter 57. Verse 11, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me? did not lay it to heart. Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. 
The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. This is a a closing message of warning, of judgment, uh, of righteous indignation, right? It's a description of what happens to anyone who trusts anything besides God, besides Messiah, for purpose, for value, for authority, for salvation. Uh, the, the whole point of it, it uh, where he's saying, uh, who did you fear? Who did you dread? Like, was it worth it? Could your idols save you? Let them, let them try. Your little statues of gold and silver, let them try to save you, right? Uh, they'll, they're gonna be destroyed. But those who take refuge in me, uh, they'll possess the land. Those who take refuge in me, uh, they shall inherit my holy mountain. Those who take refuge in God, they will be saved. And it, it closes in uh, Chapter 57, verse 20, it says there, 21, it says, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So our final observation is that salvation is not for anyone who does not fear the Lord. Salvation is not for anyone who does not fear the Lord, right? Or you could rephrase that. Salvation is only for those who fear the Lord. But the emphasis uh, in this passage is it's not for those who don't fear the Lord, right? It, it, it's a, a warning for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. Now, uh, let's go ahead and display all seven of these ideas so that uh, if anyone needs to catch up on writing them down, right? Uh, The seven ideas about salvation, they should be familiar to you, even if you're kind of new to church and only been around for a little bit. If you have a a church that just has sound preaching, uh, these should not be strange thoughts, right? These should be thoughts that make sense to you, but I'd like to process them for just a moment. Salvation is for every nation through the Messiah. Salvation is by trusting and obeying the Messiah instead of yourself. Salvation is a call to godliness despite the fear of men. Salvation is a right relationship with God with no fear of curse or hardship. Salvation is by God's forgiveness when you repent. Salvation is based on your regard for for God, not the world's regard for you. And salvation is not for anyone who does not fear the Lord. If you recall... I said that in chapters 40 through 66, from 40 to the end of the book, uh, it's all talking about events that are future from the perspective of Isaiah, right? At least 150 years into the future. Uh, and it's, it's about three distinct eras, right? Um, 40 through 48 were primarily about being freed from Babylonian captivity, right? That was the near future for Isaiah, the things that would happen shortly after his lifetime. That was the near future for him. Uh, and then uh, the, the, the last few chapters, 57 through 66, those are about the end times, right? The messianic kingdom uh, till eternity. It's, it's all about that happy ending, right? But the chapters we looked at today, uh, chapters 49 through 57, if you notice, this is, uh, this is a section that has, it doesn't even mention Babylon, Right? It doesn't talk about Babylon, but it's, it, 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 it keeps bringing our attention back to the nature of salvation, the, the, the plan that God has for salvation. Right? And it, it, uh, it keeps bringing us back to this, and it centers on, on those t- the ideas of our sin and our salvation. Our sin is what we've done. Our salvation is what God offers. That's what this section is about. And this section, by the way, is what the whole book of Isaiah wants to get to, right? Those 39 chapters were about like, you know, careful because of your sin, there's going to be judgment from the nation of Assyria that's going to take over the northern country. And then they'll, they'll mess up the, the southern country of Judah. And then eventually Babylon will come and take it over, right? That's 39 chapters of just warning because of their sin. 
And then, uh, and then you have chapters of comfort, chapters 40 through, through 48, where it says you will be freed from Babylonian captivity. You will be freed. That's a, there's a, a sure sign of God's promise and his salvation. God can save you from earthly trouble, yes. And, and that's proven to you in the, in the time of the Babylonian captivity. That's there so that you can historically look and say God did exactly what he said. So that when you get to these chapters... He says, the problem is your sin. The problem is your your wayward relationship with the Lord. The problem is your lack of repentance. The problem is your fear of man and what the world can do to you. The problem is is the disposition of your heart. And he's saying like, this is is the, the issue at hand. Don't worry about Babylon. Don't worry about that kind of stuff. He says, don't you know what the point of all this is? The, the, the whole purpose of the book of Isaiah and the Bible as a whole is to get you to the understanding of your sin and God's salvation. This is what God wants to fix in the world, right? It's not just a, a problem for the nation of Israel and, or the nation of Judah. It doesn't, it's, it's not just for them. He's saying this to everybody from, from the time Isaiah wrote even to the end times, Right? The problem in the world is sin. And the only solution is salvation. God's salvation. Not some other means. And the agent of that salvation is Messiah. And the fourth passage about the Lord's servant, Yahweh's servant, that fourth passage is in the chapter that, that we'll treat next time. Right? The, the whole point that the agent by which God's salvation comes is Messiah, is Jesus. Uh, and this is what the whole book is driving you toward. Right? It's this idea of God judges sin and he will deliver and he's proven it through this whole Babylon thing. He's proven that God can deliver historically and so what's true historically is true spiritually. Right? The history part was just an object lesson, a physical demonstration of the spiritual principle he's really giving. This is the point he wants you to get. The book of Isaiah has been about judgments against God's guilty people the people of Israel, Judah, the people of the world, they get judged, they get exiled. And uh, the first 39 chapters, God keeps warning his people that that's what happens for sinfulness, right? That judgment comes for sin. And they do eventually get conquered. Israel gets conquered by Assyria. Judah gets conquered by Babylon. And these, the, the nations that conquered them, Assyria and Babylon, they are way more wicked than Israel and Judah. If you're, if you're going to sit there and compare, they're way more wicked. And so here, here are the people of God, you know, they get conquered and they're crying out for justice and redemption and restoration or salvation. And they're like, how can this be? How can you let this happen, God? Why, why would you judge us and let a more wicked nation, a more sinful nation, a more evil nation come and take over and they get to win? Why would you let that happen? Right? That's, the, that's the big thing on the, uh, the minds of the people of God. That's the thing that they keep crying out all the time. You see it in a bunch of psalms. You see it in, in several of the prophetic books. Right? That's why I said read, read Habakkuk. I think that that's a really good short 15-minute read, less than 15 minutes, and it kind of captures that. But how easy is it for the people of God to think that salvation is being saved from circumstances instead of sin? Uh, here's what I mean by that, right? Uh, When's the last time you prayed desperately? Was it when someone was really sick? 
or when you thought you were going to lose your job or something? You know, was it when something bad was going to happen to you? Or have you prayed that fervently, that sincerely, that passionately, that desperately over your sin? We pray that God would fix our circumstances. We pray that God would fix our situation. We pray that God would fix our setbacks. We pray that God would fix our struggles. We pray that God would just fix these things that happened to us as if our problems were all external and they just introduced themselves into our lives and then we want God to take it away and when God takes it away, we're good. We pray that God would make some external problem go away, whether it be Babylon Make Babylon go away. Captivity, make it go away. Make poverty go away. These days, make racism go away. Make corrupt politicians go away. Make unemployment go away. Right? That's the stuff that we pray. And we, we, uh, we get all focused on this. And it, the tricky thing is that God absolutely does want to get rid of these things. And he absolutely plans to. But getting rid of those things is not the focus of his plan because those issues are symptoms this is what happens because of sin right this is what happens because of sinfulness the cause is our sinfulness the problem is our selfishness the 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 problem is our self-righteousness our 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 self-reliance the problem is we trust in our own fire our own torch to be our own light Right? We just walk in whatever direction we want. What we need is a solution not to, to Babylon, uh, not a solution to poverty or racism or corrupt politicians or unemployment. That, like, it's not we need to solve these, these issues. In our, it, it's, it's not necessarily that. Those things should be solved consequently. What we need a solution to is sin, starting with yours, starting with mine. Right? Individual, personal sin. That's where we need to be fixed, right? If that's fixed in us, if sin is fixed in us, where, where we, uh, our desire for sin is, is, is uh, you know, it's, it's dealt with and it's, it's taken away and our punishment for sin is paid for on the cross and then our, our whole approach in life is when we sin, we repent and we come back, we confess and we, you know, we forgive one another and all that stuff. When that happens, if, if, if that's fixed in us, then collectively we build a better society, Consequently, we build a better society. What happens? What needs to happen? You know, God has to call us to a radically different way of life, right? If we want these things to be fixed in society, we have to say, God, something has to transform me, which is precisely what he offers, right? His, his law in our hearts, that's exactly what he offers. He says, let let Messiah do his thing. Let Yahweh's servant do his thing and call you to restoration and right relationship with him. Let my law be written on your heart so that you know righteousness. Watch what happens. Take refuge in me. Right? We need a, a radically different way of life, one where our differences aren't derived by nations and ethnicities. They're defined by our trust in Messiah, in Jesus. Uh, we need a, a radically different way of life, one where we're not at, uh, at all in it for ourselves, you know, it, we're, we're doing what we're doing because we trust and obey Jesus Christ. One where we're not afraid of the threats that the world throws at us because godliness will eternally outlast evil. 
Uh, one where we're not in terror of being cursed or enduring hardship because God will restore us from these things. One where we don't boast at each other for our greatness because we all understand that at base value, we just need forgiveness, right? There's no boasting in our need for forgiveness. One where we're not measured by worldly wealth or reputation because God's ways are higher than the world's ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We need a transformation where we don't rebel against God because we fear the Lord. If ever, if ever we get to this point in society, which we're at right now, where everyone is crying out for justice, for deliverance, for salvation from some problem, if ever we want to cry out for justice or salvation or for God to fix something, it must start with your own heart. If we look at society and say there's some injustice and it needs to be fixed, and if we propose a solution that excludes Jesus, then it is a wayward, self-centered, self-reliant, wicked, worldly solution. It's a solution that an unbeliever would think of. God says the problem is sin, the solution is salvation, and the only means of that is the Savior. If ever you want a solution for a problem in this world, it always needs to come back to Messiah, to Jesus, to the Savior. Because anything apart from him is worldly and wayward, self-relying and God-denying, and it's wickedness. There is no peace for the wicked, but for those who take refuge in the Lord, there is salvation. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. God, we have covered some of the, of the main idea that's given in Isaiah 49 through 57. There is a wealth of things that we could say. And there's so much left to be said in the part that we skipped. And I hope, Lord, that at least where we're at now, that it has properly set us up for the understanding we need when we get into your word next time. Lord, salvation is, is not something that we can just uh, bring about through political action, through some kind of activism. The only kingdom that's really gonna work is your kingdom, the one that Jesus establishes. And it's not that we want to be sapped of all effort and, and, uh, and care for our society. It's not that. We ask God that we would try to rectify our society through the means of the Savior, not by any other wayward, worldly, self-centered, self-reliant, God-excluding, God-denying thing. But that whenever we see injustice or whenever we see that something needs to be fixed in our lives or in this world, always we'd come back to Messiah. Come back to Yahweh's servant. Come back to the Savior, to the Christ, to come back to Jesus. Prepare us for our deep and detailed look at him next time. Pray that for now, we would trust simply in your plan of salvation. 
that we would inspect our sin, starting with ourselves, not our society, but to start with ourselves and say, woe to me, and to come and be cleansed by you, by your Savior, to be forgiven, abundantly pardoned, and then to go and be a light for all nations, for people of any status who come and turn to you. Bless your church this way and glorify yourself. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.